Open our Bibles, if you would please, to 1 John chapter 2. And it's good to be back in our study of 1 John tonight after a week off here as we had our evening in the Redwoods last week. First uh, John has really been a blessed study. To me, this has been uh, so far one of my favorite studies that we've gone through. And there are many things that are in this little book of First John that go unnoticed as, at a casual glance. Uh, as we carefully go through this, though, there are great truths that are to be discovered. And if you go a little bit deeper into the Word, you're always enriched by searching for those truths. And I've learned by studying three different books at the same time, preaching through those, uh, how much the Word of God is really complementary. I look at the truths that we've learned in Matthew, and we see that they show up here in the epistle of 1 John. And that's to be expected because the epistles are, uh, a great deal of them are expansions of the teachings that Jesus did in the Gospels. And so we, we look at what the apostles teach, and we would expect that that would be so because they never introduced anything that would be contradictory to what Jesus said. And I think it's especially noticeable in the writings of John. Uh, he always had Christ on his mind, and unlike the apostle Paul, John could go back and think about the time that he spent with Christ. Paul didn't have that opportunity, but John did. And all those, those three years that he walked with Christ and listened to his ministry, I think it's easy for us to see the teachings of Jesus show up in John's writings. And so it's not very strange or shouldn't be that our studies cross paths as we go through Matthew and through First John and through the book of Revelation because John wrote that as well. And we look at this, and it doesn't happen in a fortuitous manner. Uh, we can really thank the Holy Spirit because he's put us into a position where he helps us to understand one book by studying another. And that really became much more apparent to me uh, after a conversation that I had with uh, one of our members a few weeks ago. I love it when people of the church take the messages to heart and they take the exhortations that are given in Scripture as personal encouragement. And that's what you should do with the messages. Uh, everyone is, every one of the messages is intended for you, and if they weren't, I wouldn't preach them because it doesn't do any good to preach if there's no one to apply them. So I was preaching on the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, and we were going through those weeks where I was encouraging people to look down deep into their lives, to see, uh, to examine their, your hearts, to see if you really are true believers in Christ. And I said that there are some people who will not examine themselves because they don't think that the messages are actually for them. And so they don't listen to the exhortation that's given from Scripture. But these members took the exhortation very seriously, and I suppose in some ways that it was troubling. And it wasn't that they were doing wicked things, but simply wondering about this question, can we really ever know that we are truly in the faith? And so I pointed out in that conversation that the messages that I gave in, in Matthew were not with the intent that I would put doubt in anyone's mind. I don't want true Christians to think that uh, their or to doubt their salvation or that I doubt it. Uh, but I do know that it can be taken that way. And the purpose is not to give doubt, but to really give us assurance. Self-examination brings assurance because when you find these characteristics in your life, the fruits of true belief, when you find those tests of obedience and love and doctrine are present in your life, they will confirm you in the faith. 
And that became very important as I began to look into this next section in the second chapter of 1 John. So I'm going to read this, and then I'll explain to you what I mean about that in just a moment. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 12, John says, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because ye have known the Father. I have written unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. In these verses, John is faced with the same problem that I had when I was preaching on self-examination. There are those who hear the messages like those of the a conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, and they do come away very troubled. Uh, they may indeed examine their faith, and they find that they're, not, they're really not in the faith. And as I preach those sermons, I know that there were many people that were listening that I have no doubt in my mind that they are actually true Christians. I see the fruit in their lives. I see that they are busy about God's work. I, I know that they're listening to the preaching, and they're drinking all of that in. They're applying it, and through all of that, they are growing. And for those people, the messages will bring assurance. Uh, what makes some people think that they're not saved makes those people know that they are saved. And so the messages will rattle some. It shakes some people up. And while others, the same things that are said will calm them down and will give them a peaceful assurance that they really are the children of God. And what I don't want to happen is for those two groups to be crossed with each other. I don't want good Christians to have doubts, and I don't want false ones not to heed the exhortations. Well, this is exactly what John is contemplating as he writes verses 12 through 14. He is very concerned that good, born-again believers would think that he targets them with his strong rebukes. Now, what he has in mind, of course, is the Gnostics. These are false professors, and so he has to teach against them, and he's very strong about it. But at the same time, he doesn't want to uproot real believers and move them over into the category of the Gnostics who aren't true believers. And so here we have, in verses 12 through 14, a pause in John's arguments. What he does here is to inject a personal note to let true believers uh, be aware that he didn't doubt their salvation, and he doesn't want them to doubt it either. And so he says, here's where I, why I have written this to you. And he breaks it down into three different categories of believers. There are children, there are fathers, and there are young men. And each of those represents a stage in the growth of the believer. And for each stage in that spectrum of true belief, he wants each group to have assurance. And indeed, we notice in 1 John chapter 5, verse number 13, a scripture that we have to emphasize over and over again through this study John says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. And that's a verse that you have to keep in mind as you go through this, because real believers don't want to be thrown off stride. And so the letter is intended to be a confidence booster for those who really know Christ, that are really in the faith, and for those that aren't, then the chips fall where they may. And that's the importance of studying 1 John very carefully and looking into why he makes each statement. Now, you need to think very carefully about this 
that the writers of the New Testament are dealing with Holy Spirit-inspired words. This is all the revelation of God that we have. It's all contained right here. There is no other revelation from God but this. And so by, by that, it should be apparent to us that every word that's written here must be very important. It has to be scrutinized very closely. And because those words are important, we know that there's nothing in the Word of God that's been written superfluously. Now, in preaching messages from Matthew and 1 John, I've encountered this same problem that John has. Uh, Some people will take the messages wrongly, and for them, you stop and you explain the intent. And I just praise God that we do have people that listen and they do take the Word of God seriously. And if you're a Christian and you don't take the sermons that are preached by the pastor seriously, and you become bored by the Word of God, then you're not going to fit into any of these categories that John mentions here. Uh, You're not going to fit because it's a good indication that you're not actually a true child of God. And so we pause, just as John does, for a personal note. This is what he does. He addresses three different groups of believers, and he divides them according to their group. Uh, to their growth, rather. And what he says about each of these groups is very enlightening. A Christian should be always advancing. He should be always growing. He should always become uh, uh, in, a, in a place where he can become more knowledgeable in the grace of Jesus Christ. And so the subject that we have in these three verses is growth. And there is a Bible doctrine that's dedicated to that part of the Christian experience. We have terms for it. Just as justification is the term for the legal aspect of salvation, propitiation is the term for the satisfaction uh, of the Father in the atonement, and expiation is the term that we use for the removal of the guilt of sin, and election is the term that we use for the choice of the Father. So Christian growth also has a term that describes it, and we call it sanctification. So that's where we're going to begin our study tonight, the sanctifying work of God. Sanctification is a work of God. Now, your, your growth as a Christian is completely owing to the work of God in your life. And if God is not at work, you will not grow. And at the same time, we can say that if you're not growing, God is not at work. And so that means you're in a place where you need to be very, very concerned about whether you are a true believer. If you're not growing and God is not at work in your life, then you need to consider whether you're really in the faith. Because everyone that God saves, he sanctifies. All that are justified are sanctified. Now, justification and sanctification are not the same, but these are two doctrines that go together. You don't have one without the other. And the reason that you don't is simply this. That's the way that God has designed salvation. There are certain elements that you have in salvation that if one of them is absent, then others will be absent as well. And so if you don't have sanctification, you don't have justification. And if you don't have justification, you won't have sanctification. They're not the same, but they do work together very closely. Well, there are two very vital aspects of sanctification that have to be differentiated. And the first of these is positional sanctification. And positional sanctification has been accomplished. Every person that is born again is sanctified. They are sanctified so that in God's eyes they have been made holy. Now, sanctification comes from the Greek word hagiosmos, which means holiness. And the noun form of that word is is sanctification. But when you express it in a verb form, it comes from the word hagiadzo, 
And it means to render or acknowledge venerable, to hallow, to separate from things that are profane, to dedicate to God, to consecrate, and to purify. And so in that form, it means that one who has been born again has been separated to God. He has a position of holiness because God has made him that way. And in this sense, you are never going to be more sanctified at any point of your life than you are at the moment that you believe. I mean, no matter what stage that you are in your spiritual development, you'll never be more sanctified than you were when you first believed. Now, sometimes we call that our past sanctification. You have been sanctified because when you believed, you were washed with the blood of Christ. The blood of Jesus has taken away the guilt of your sin. It's taken away your shame. It's taken away God's penalty of the law away from you. And in that respect, you become holy. And you're never going to become more holy. Uh, You're holy because you have been justified by Christ's righteousness. Now, that's what happens in justification. You are given the righteousness of Christ. So if you have his righteousness, you couldn't possibly be any holier than you are at the moment that you believe. And that's God's work, and you can't add to that. It's been fully accomplished in you. It's done, and that is settled forever. And so that means that no matter where you are in terms of time and the time that you've been a Christian, in terms of your growth as a Christian, you are never going to be more loved by God at any point of your life. I mean, as a newborn baby in Christ, you're not going to be loved any more or any less than a person who's been a Christian for 50 years. And that is a tremendous realization for any Christian because we know from that that we don't have to struggle to make God love us. We don't have to worry about God forsaking us because at the moment that you believe, you are assured for heaven. And you're as saved as anybody who's attended church for nearly all of their life. Now, later we're going to see how that John breaks this down. And no matter where you fall into one of these categories, children, uh, young men, or fathers, and I'll just inject here, we're not talking about chronological age. We're not talking about your age physically. This is speaking about your spiritual age. And no matter where you fall into one of those three groups, you cannot be loved more or less by God. And so God doesn't love you more or less if you go to a Bible college or if you don't. He doesn't love you more or less if you are materially successful or if you have to beg like Lazarus. And then also get this, he doesn't love you less when you fall into sin. Now, he doesn't want you to fall into sin. You're going to be chastised for that. But the whole point of God's chastisement is precisely because he does love you and he wants to bless you. And the only blessing that you're going to receive when you're in that state of sin is the blessing of knowing that God will chastise you because you're one of his own. And that proves that he does love you. So in position, uh, speaking of your position, there is no difference between any Christian. When you're saved, you have been sanctified, and you'll never be more sanctified than when you believe. And you're a saint. That's what God calls you. That's what the Scripture says. When you are become a Christian, become a saint, and that's also just another form of the word sanctified. So that's the first aspect of sanctification. It has been accomplished. It's completed. It, it's done with. That's over with. But then there's this other side of sanctification that we need to discuss, And this we call progressive sanctification. This is being accomplished. Now, positional sanctification, that's already settled. That's in the past. But progressive sanctification is different. And the term is just exactly as it sounds. It is progressive. It's ongoing. It's in the present. It is being accomplished in your life. 
It's the production of fruit in your life as a Christian. So it's a growth process. Now, I want you to turn, if you would, in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. And I want to show you this word sanctification expressed in this way. And you might want to underline the word in your Bible and write out next to it sanctification. So if you look in verse number 19 of Romans chapter 6, Paul is writing, and he says, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members, servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members, servants to righteousness unto holiness. Now, holiness there is the word hagiosmos. That's the very same word that was translated uh, where we saw it a moment ago as sanctification. And that's the word that you want to underline in your Bible. You underline holiness, and you can write beside that sanctification. Now, in verse 20, he says, For when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit had you then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and to the end everlasting life. Now, you'll notice there in verse number 22 that we have the same word holiness again, and that means sanctification. You have your fruit unto holiness. Now, there is where we have the difference between the saved and the lost, because those that are sanctified bear fruits of holiness, and those who aren't bear corrupt fruit. And that helps us to understand a little bit better what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, corrupt trees do not bring forth good fruit, and good trees do not bring forth corrupt fruit. Why? Well, the reason is because one is being sanctified and the other is not. One has this ongoing work of God going on in his life, and the other does not. And what salvation does is that it always brings about that demonstrated effect. There's always that demonstrated change. But the way that it's taught many times today destroys the Bible doctrine of sanctification. And you remember I mentioned some time ago that uh, there's a Baptist paper in which the editor said that you could be a Christian and not be a disciple. He said that some Christians are not disciples. Now, that could never be because that denies the Bible doctrine of sanctification. You see, the lordship of Christ in our lives is our sanctification. As we yield to his lordship, we're being sanctified. And if that's not going on in a person's life, then there is no salvation. Now, obviously, this particular group uh, neglects what I've just said, because they love to count the souls that are one for Jesus. I mean, they have to maintain a certain number. Uh, their, their jobs depend upon it. And so uh, uh, if you can live and breathe, if you can repeat the sinner's prayer, then they're going to count you. I mean, they'll mark you down in order to help meet the quota. And so what they actually do is they separate justification from sanctification to the extent that they say you could actually have one without the other. So a lack of fruit as a Christian would not get you discounted from their number. I think it's very interesting that many of these hold up uh, Charles Finney. And you might want to get that name in your mind. Uh, Charles Finney was a revivalist from the 19th century. And they use him as an example of a great soul winner for Jesus. And they claim that during his lifetime that 500,000 people were saved under his ministry. Now, I pulled a quote from this paper's website, and on this website, they have biographies of great men. And here's what they say about Finney. This is the last statement that they make about him. They say, although some of his theology was lacking, 
He was a powerful, spirit-filled soul winner who brought revival to cities and towns across the eastern United States. Well, immediately when I, you read that statement, some of his theology is lacking. Well, what is lacking in his theology? Well, let me explain it to you. First of all, he denied the imputation of Christ's righteousness. He denied Christ's penal substitution for the sinner. He said that Christ could not die for anyone's sins but his own. He taught that uh, coming to Christ was the result of moral persuasion and not the work of the Holy Spirit. He believed that people are justified by their obedience, and a Christian who did not render perfect obedience is on the same grounds as a lost person. And so, in other words, he taught that salvation could be lost. And so it's no wonder that the most famous sermon that he ever preached is entitled this way, Sinners Bound to Change Their Own Hearts. So this paper, this Baptist paper, flies right over those hellish doctrines, and they call Charles Finney a great soul winner. Now, how do you win souls with a lie? And yet they continue the methods that Charles Finney put into place. Those methods are coercion, moral persuasion in order to get people to believe, endless invitations, tear-jerking stories. And Finney started all of that because he believed that salvation is simply a decision that you make It is not brought about by the sovereign work of God. And then to go further, they ignore that Finney admitted that there was little real fruit from his evangelistic campaigns. He doubted, he actually doubted the salvation of most of his converts. And so most of those 500,000 people that came in his meetings and walked down aisles and went to his inquiry rooms and sat on his benches and so forth, uh, they came in hell-bound sinners and they left hell-bound sinners. Now, the interesting thing about this is that today, the area of the country where he preached is referred to as a burn zone. You know why they call it that? It's because the people were plied with tactics and manipulation so often and for so long, and so many false professions were elicited that there's nobody who trusts the gospel today to do anything. And so today, New England, where Charles Finney ministered, is the most gospel-poor place in the nation. There hasn't been a revival in that part of the country since the 19th century. Now, interestingly, this past Sunday morning, we had a young couple. It's the third time that they visited our church. They live in Rochester, New York. And I was talking to them uh, after the service, and uh, one of the things he said to me, I said, where are you from? And he said, we're from the burn zone. Uh, that was very peculiar. I'd been working on this message, and here he, he says to me, where, I, where are you from? I'm from the burn zone. And so we knew exactly what each of us was talking about there. And so uh, that, that's just amazing to me. It's, it's burned over. That area of the country is burned over, and there's nothing that grows there. And I'm afraid that what's happened is that, that those methods and that theology has actually filled Baptist churches today with know-nothings. And what it's done, it's degraded true teaching of doctrine. It's degraded dependence upon the Holy Spirit for regenerating work. And every year that this goes on, where our Baptist people continue to preach those doctrines, the people get weaker and weaker in the faith. Now, what's happened is that this has led to the laying down. Now, I'm going to show you how this all ties together, why I included all this information. But it's what's led to the laying down of endless rules and ministries. And that's because if you get concerned, uh, uh, confused rather, about the sanctifying work, uh, if people aren't actually saved, there is no sanctifying work, and so then you have to manufacture one. 
And so, it's the inevitable outgrowth of decisional regeneration that there has to be a standard to be established to live by, and that standard actually becomes a person's sanctification. But that is not Bible sanctification. Bible sanctification is an ongoing work of the Holy Spirit that produces fruit in the Christian, and that is born in the change that happens on the inside of him. It's not something that gets added later. And so sanctification is not tacked on to your Christian life. It begins the very day that a person trusts Christ, that he repents of his sins, believes in Christ. It starts on that day, and his sanctification begins to lead him into growth and the production of fruit. On the next two weeks, we're going to uh, break down three weeks. Actually, I told you, well, it's not in the next three weeks. This sermon's going to get separated by a long period of time. We'll get two parts of it, and then it's going to take a long time to get to that fourth one later on. But we're going to look into these different categories as John separates them. And the bottom line of all three categories is assurance. And what he's trying to show is it doesn't matter what stage you are in your spiritual growth, whether you're the baby, whether you've progressed to a young man, or whether you have progressed to the father stage, that in all three stages... Assurance can be found, and you can be sure of your salvation no matter if you've just been saved yesterday or if you've been saved for 50 years. But rather than go on into that part uh, right now, what I, what I want to do is stick with this, this doctrine that we saw, see brought up here of sanctification. So I want to go a little bit further on that, and I want to show you what sanctification is. And I'm going to go through these rather quickly this evening. But what is sanctification? Well, sanctification is, first of all, the renewing of your mind. And this is the way that Paul expresses it in Ephesians chapter 4. He says that he put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness." Now, there it's evident that Paul is not speaking of positional sanctification. Here he's talking about progressive sanctification because these people that he's writing to are regenerated people. And he means to tell them that there must be an increase in their knowledge of Christ. There has to be a striving for that. There has to be striving for it in prayer. There has to be earnestness in that pursuit. And you may remember that we discussed this in Second Peter uh, a few weeks ago. Peter said, And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now there, Peter is speaking about this progressive sanctification. He speaks of giving diligence. That means earnestness. Earnestness to pursue these Christian graces so that they put your mind in a continual state of renewal. And of course, that's enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit uses these different graces to grow you up as a Christian. And if you neglect that, if you neglect the teaching of God's Word, and if you consider that to be boring, then you need not expect that there's going to be any fruit in your life as a Christian. Now, the second thing that we would note about sanctification is that it is subjective. Progressive sanctification is subjective. It's inward. It takes place in your mind. It doesn't start from the outside in. 
And that's why just a mere change of habits and a list, list of rules are never going to sanctify you. They can't because sanctification starts from within. And that's proved by what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12. He said, O generation of vipers, how can ye being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. So it's the change of heart in regeneration that brings about this sanctification. So you could keep a list of rules from here to the other side of the moon. And that's not going to make you any more sanctified. Now, thirdly, sanctification is practical. That means that what is inward will manifest itself outwardly. So you don't need a rule book because the real sanctification of a Christian will produce the right kind of Christian living. Now, a few years ago, I started teaching this. And quite frankly, it's something different than you had been taught before. And I think that there was a real sigh of relief that went over the church because people thought, okay, wow, we are done with rules. And so now we can just go do anything that we want. We're living under grace and not under law. Well, there's an interesting thing that Paul says about this. I want you to go back to Romans 6 for a moment here, if you would, and let's stick there for just a minute. And I want you to see this. I think young people, you need to turn in your Bibles to see this. Parents of young people, you need to turn there. You need to see it. And hopefully, it will correct your understanding of a few things. Now, notice what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6, beginning with verse number 12. He says, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Now, there's a whole lot of stuff that's in those verses. When Paul started preaching law, or rather preaching grace instead of law, it conjured up this whole list of questions. How great is the grace of God? Well, the grace of God is great enough to cover all sin. How can we show grace abounding? Keep on sinning. Keep sinning in greater ways. Well, there's where you hear the buzzer. Ah, that's not right. I mean, this is, this is where you need to learn that you don't keep on sinning to show the greatness of God's grace. Being free from the law does not free you to sin. Now, Paul anticipated that question. He says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? And the answer he gives is, God forbid. The greatness of God's grace is that it enables us not to sin. So we couldn't live that way before. But the greatness of God's grace enables us not to sin. And God's grace takes away the desire to sin. But some of you didn't get that. You just took the new more rules. And what popped in your mind was plenty of more sin. 
And so things started getting worse and worse. You start looking worse and worse. Your clothes start getting tighter and tighter. And your dresses get shorter and shorter. And your speech gets worse and worse. And the mind gets cluttered up and more cluttered up with the things of the world. And so you have actually answered Paul's question. He says, what then shall we sin? And some of you answered, by all means. Let's see how much sin that we can get into. Now, glance up the page at the first verse in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? You see, Paul knew exactly how the carnal mind would react to these teachings about law and grace. In chapter 5, the last part of it ends this way. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace will reign through righteousness. That's what Paul says. And so if getting rid of rules caused you to rush into sin, it's not grace that's reigning in your heart. It's sin that reigns in your heart. In other words, you haven't proved your salvation. What you've done is you prove the opposite. You prove that your heart is still dead. Now, does that make sense to you? Does it make sense? Grace doesn't lead you into more sin. It leads you to a life away from sin. And so if you recognize grace reigning in your heart, the practical outworking of that grace is that you will walk with the Lord. And your life is not going to be one that flourishes on that boundary, just seeing how close to sin that you can get, walking this tightrope between sin and righteousness. Now here's the question. How do we know that we are actually teaching this doctrine correctly. How do we know that we're teaching the grace of God correctly? It's because it raises the same kinds of questions that it raised for the Apostle Paul. When he started preaching it, it raised these questions. And what happens is that some will use the doctrines of God's grace to lead them into greater sin because they don't understand it. And on the other side, it will lead people away from sin because they know God's grace. Now, which one of those do you think has it right? The one who uses God's grace to go into sin or the one who gets led away from sin? That's how you tell whether you understand whether grace reigns in your heart. Now, the fourth thing about sanctification is that sanctification is relative. Sanctification is relative. Now, the extent of your sanctification is relative to the amount of time and effort that you spend walking with the Lord. Now, that's not true of positional sanctification. And you ought to understand that by what we've already said about it. In the positional sense, you are right now sanctified for heaven. So that if you were to leave this life right now at this very moment, it doesn't make any difference if you were saved yesterday, you're going to heaven when you die. It doesn't matter if you've ever done anything for God. You had not had time to do anything for God. It doesn't matter. Your place in heaven is secure. That's positionally. But as far as progressive sanctification is concerned... It is relative to the amount of time that you spend walking with the Lord. It's relative to the amount of diligence that you give to add to your faith, as Peter says. Now, there's something here that I think we all need to understand very clearly, and that is that every step that you take forward, every step that you advance in progressive sanctification, every step can be negated. There's no such thing as resting on what you've done in the past when you talk about this kind of sanctification. Now, here, here we need to understand as well, there is no such thing as retirement in the Lord's service. I mean, at the very moment that you say, well, you know, I'm kind of worn out now. 
I think I'm going to sit down and take a rest and take it easy for a while. And when you do that, that is the moment that growth stops. And the funny thing about spiritual growth is it doesn't stay even. You can't say, well, I reached my plane, and here's where I'm going to stay. I'm going to settle right in here. It never works that way. It's like, it's like a, an airplane. It's, it's climbing into the sky, and as long as those engines are running, it'll keep climbing up and up and up. As soon as you shut the engine off, what happens? The airplane comes straight down to the ground. It has nowhere to go but down, and that is exactly what happens in a Christian life. When you stop, when you stop working for the Lord, when you stop praying, when you stop reading, when you stop all of that, then you start regressing. You go, you go down, and you have no place to go but down. And I've learned that this is true uh, in things like studying the Word of God because if you don't continually study God's Word, you do not retain. And that, that's true for me. I mean, I, I spend just about every day of the week studying the Bible, but I find this to be true that if I, even if I go on vacation and I don't have the opportunity to study like I did, I have to go back and start again and start reading these things again and get them back into my mind again because you do not retain that stuff. God, I mean, there's some of it, of course, that you do, but, but you cannot keep all this stuff in your mind without constantly staying at it. And it's the same thing with prayer. If you are a praying person and you'd all of a sudden decide, well, I'm not going to pray much anymore, well, you're not going to pick it up a year later and be at the same place that you were when you left off. It does not work that way. And so we can't retire in the Lord's service. Now, uh, obviously, there comes a time in a person's life when you can't do as much as you did before. Not physically. That's part of the process of growing old. And so what does a person do when he gets into that situation? Does that mean he's going to stop his growth? Does that mean that he can't be close to the Lord anymore because he can't physically do things? Not at all. Because now when you get to that age, you find, ah, I have more time to pray. I have more time to read. I have more time to meditate on the things of God. You see, serving God is not confined to one way, two ways, three ways, four ways. There are multiple avenues for serving God. And when one of those closes up, God opens up another one. And you can take that path, and you can stay close to God. You may go a different direction. I mean, uh, you're still on that parallel track to heaven, of course, but you may have to veer off over here and do something else because physically you can't do what you used to do. So this is what Paul, or rather what John, is going to teach us here about these stages of spiritual growth. And, and I'm, I say I, I started on these messages, and I thought that I could end all of this in one. But after looking into this and, and just studying this thing out, uh, I got two messages, then it went to three. Now, I did finish the fourth one today. I, I, I was able to get through it. And to me, it's, it's just interesting the way that John uh, sets these different stages of spiritual growth before us and shows us how each of those groups receives assurance in the stage that they're in. So we're going to leave it there tonight, and we'll come back next week, and we'll start looking at the divisions that are in the passage, and we'll find that assurance for all three groups of believers. So John didn't want to produce doubt. He wanted people to understand it, so he pauses and puts this section of Scripture in here for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we have to spend together tonight. Lord, we, we are so blessed to be able uh, to look into your word. We're so thankful that you've given us this book that really strengthens us and draws us close to you. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help each person here tonight to take the word of God that's been preached, to, to apply it to their lives, 
uh, to study this even more, make it a part of what they do this week. This is why we give the messages each week, to bring people closer to you. So, Lord, bless us as we sing. Thank you for everyone who's come tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.